This is episode 73 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 73 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Leonard J. DiLorenzo, the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life, host of the radio show and podcast Church Life Today, and editor of the new book, The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. We chat about how his work connects academic research with pastoral ministry, how truly good children's literature is also good reading for adults, and how a chance response to a meeting invitation has made all the difference in his life and vocation. Let's sit down together for this delightful conversation. Well, Lenny DiLorenzo, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks so much, Ken. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? When did you arrive at Notre Dame? What did you study? Those sorts of things. Well, where I'm from, I was born in Nutley, New Jersey, northern Jersey, uh, bordering the beautiful uh, city of Newark. Uh, I lived in a couple places in New Jersey as a young kid. My whole family is from there. We moved for some time to Tennessee, just outside of uh, Nashville and just outside of Memphis. But then for the most part, I grew up in Southern California, Orange County, moved there uh, just before I turned nine years old, stayed there through high school. And that's when I made my way to Notre Dame and came here uh, for college. Uh, My undergraduate started working in the McGrath Institute for Church Life immediately after graduating, as a matter of fact, in 2003. Did my graduate degrees while I was working in the Institute, and I've been here since. So I have lived in South Bend longer than I've lived anywhere else. I think that might make me a Midwesterner. I'm very comfortable now with potluck. Hot dish. Uh, Sure, sure. You know, like in Jersey, if you're hosting a party, uh, you're going to make all the food. In California, if you're hosting a party, you're getting it catered. Here in the Midwest, you ask somebody else to bring the main dish. So it's really great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What was your undergrad? So I studied theology and philosophy. I actually came in. uh, I thought I would do political science. It was then government. And then I had this idea. I would triple major in theology, philosophy, and government. And I went to each of the undergraduate advisors in theology, said that sounds great. Philosophy said that sounds great. And the government advisor said, you know, nobody's going to be impressed with a triple major. And he really shot right to my heart. And it wasn't like punishment for government that they said that to me. He w- it was actually a good bit of honesty. Like I think I was looking to be impressive, right? Sure. And that sort of freed me to say, okay, what do I really want to study? And theology was my primary love. And philosophy was sort of the handmaid of that for me, right, to help me study that better. Yeah. It's also the handmaid for the church. So. I know. I use that. <laughs> I use that intentionally. That's good. That's good. Well, you mentioned that you've been at the McGrath Institute, which it before was— Before it was the before, McGrath yeah, Institute, yeah. For basically your entire time That's here. That's right. Uh, I believe you met your bride through the ICL? 
I did. So the Notre Dame Vision Program, which is one of the programs of the Institute, uh, was founded in 2002. Both my wife Lisa and I, not then married, (laughs) were undergraduate mentors for that program in the first year. So we were part of the same friend group coming out of that program in 2002. I was going into my senior year. She was going into her junior year. And it just so happened we started spending more time together intentionally as it happens. And we were married in July of 2004. Good number of our best friends also came out of that particular group. It was really sort of serendipitous and providential gathering of people and the kind of work we were involved in, uh, mentoring high school students, really being introduced robustly to this idea of vocation and discerning our own vocations together was really quite a opportunity for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did you first get connected with the, uh, the McGrath Institute? Or the- <laughs> I received an email. So I was, I had, I was at that point a theology major. It was a, a junior, it was the fall of my junior year. This was 2001. And we received an email inviting us to an information meeting about this new program that was starting Notre Dame Vision. And I remember this distinctly, like I wasn't going to go, I, you know, ah, I'm not going to go to this meeting, whatever. And then I think at the last minute, I just decided to go. It was close to my dorm. Um, I think they promised some kind of food stuff. And so I showed up. And Steve Camilleri, who was the first director of Notre Dame Vision, he's now the uh, executive director of the Center for the Homeless. People who know him will know he has the most magnetic personality of anyone they've ever met. And he started that meeting with a prayer from 1 Kings 19, actually a, a recitation of a passage from 1 Kings 19 of Elijah meeting the Lord in the silence of the cave. And I happened to be writing a research paper on precisely that. So it seemed a little <laughs> little too good. And then uh, Steve just, I think, appealed to our imagination in the 30 minutes that followed um, in telling us about what we might do as these mentors for high school students. And honestly, like that information session and my sort of last second decision to go really pivoted where I was going in my life, not knowing it at that point, though. But had I not gone to that, I wouldn't have done this thing, uh, Vision. I wouldn't end up working where I'm working now or even probably pursuing a, a graduate degree in theology. So grateful that I went to an information session, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or potentially even met your wife. I wouldn't have met her. Yeah. Yeah. Our children would not exist. Those particular children. Yes. <laughs> Crazy. Well, so what do you do uh, now at the McGrath Institute? And what does a typical day in the life of Lenny yeah. look like? Is that, a, is that a question from office space? What is it that you do here, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I do a number of different things. I directed that Notre Dame Vision program for uh, about a decade Primary, that was my primary gig, and I was helping to start uh, and do some of the recruiting and things like that for the ECHO program, which is a graduate service program that we have in the Institute. Um, I had moved after directing the vision program, like I said, for about a decade into a different role where I'm the academic director for that program. So I helped to set the curriculum. I teach the theology course that all the undergraduates take. I've moved on into some other things in our institute. Uh, we've started in the last couple of years uh, what's called our Sullivan Family Saints Initiative, which is about renewing devotion and promoting scholarship on the saints. So that's something that's close to my own academic interests, the spiritualities of the saints, the theology of the community of saints. So I'm helping to to build up that initiative, both through research and, like I said, through 
uh, strengthening devotion to the saints. In the last uh, couple of years, I helped to guide our strategic planning process. So as our institute has grown, especially over the last two decades, we went from a whole bunch of kind of like startup programs with a lot of entrepreneurial energy, which had to be there. And we've grown more into a coherent and cohesive institute. So what does that mean now for the next five or 10 years for working together to serve the church between the academy and the church? So helping to steer that strategic planning process. I also do a lot, as you know, I do a lot of writing, and that's based on and feeds back into a lot of the things that I do in my teaching. So um, this has to do with articles and essays, but also with book projects that kind of capture, I think, some of what I've grown into through my work in the Institute and the way I've been led into that kind of work through my own mentors and my own opportunities here at the Institute. So, for example, um, over the last few years, I worked and developed a book about guiding parishes, but especially parents and mentors in leading young people and older people into the fullness of initiation in the Catholic Church. So whether it's Preparation for Confirmation or RCIA for More Adults. Um, not a textbook, but first a way of nourishing those who are stepping into those leadership roles who aren't the professionals necessarily, but are really exercising their baptismal call, and then how to guide those who are being initiated into the faith into a biblically rich, integrated approach to the Catholic faith. So that book was called Turn to the Lord. Uh, that's one example of the things that has to do with the work here at the Institute, which is about taking the resources of the university and offering them to the church while also learning from the church what the needs and opportunities are, and then making the best resources available and building up leadership for the church. Yeah. Yeah. Very pastoral focused, though, too. Pastorally focused? Yeah. So I think taking uh, the fruits of scholarship and offering them in a pastoral way, making a number of different points of accessibility, helping to build up leadership at every level in the church, whether that has to do with parents and mentors in the home, whether it has to do with bishops who are leading a local church, obviously, in a particular way, whether it has to do with parish catechetical leaders or church leaders, um, how to build up leadership there so they continue to become more and more sophisticated resource persons, pastorally sensitive and aware, responding to the needs of particular people in our particular times, um, wrestling with cultural factors, not just to oppose them, but actually to be critical in your engagement with them and also find new creative ways to build up uh, sort of the ways of evangelization using those cultural movements. So, for example, my colleague who you know, Brett Robinson, who leads our church communications and digital ecology program. I think I got the name wrong, but he'll forgive me. He's very attentive to and leads the rest of us in learning about the developing trends and the history of the trends in uh, various forms of media, not only in the last decade or two, but over the last several hundred years and thinking about the ways in which our media environments, the ecology, both forms us and then asks us to form others. And so there are certainly negative aspects of that, ways in which we have been perhaps deformed by our media, but also ways in which we have to start with where we are in order to figure out the pathways to evangelization from there. So, Yeah. A quick step back. You studied Systematic theology. I did. And what was your dissertation on? 
My dissertation was on the theology of the communion of saints, so it had to do with the questions of death, desire, and communication. And whenever I would say that to people as I was writing, they would tell me about their strange experiences with seances and you know paranormal activity. I'd say, well, that's very interesting. I'm not quite writing on that, but yeah, um, you know, there's there's this line or this passage in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, where it's speaking about the one communion of the church this communion that runs between the pilgrim wayfarers, us, those who are living on this earth now, those who are in beatitude, the blessed saints, and those undergoing purification, those in purgatory. And it says this communion is in no way interrupted. And that was really the thing that got me going. In no way interrupted. There's a major interruption, (laughs) the interruption of death. So how to account for death and... To take death as utterly seriously as we must, and yet to discover the bond of communion in Christ that runs right through death. And so the project of that dissertation, which turned into my first book, which is Work of Love, A Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints, is about actually taking death as seriously as possible in order to recognize the stunning magnificence of communication that comes through the person of Christ who enters into solidarity with the dead, the solitariness of the dead, in order to forge in the silent, in his own silence a way of communication between the living and the dead. So that was the dissertation, more or less. I'm actually, I've written now a book that's coming out in the next couple of months that's more of the pastoral presentation of that. It's with Ave Maria Press called Our Faithful Departed, Where They Are and Why It Matters. And it has to do mostly with those who are grieving and this question of where are our beloved dead and how do we exercise communion with our beloved dead and how are they in communion with us? We know this by our Christian faith that we profess that they're living in God and that we remain in communion with them. But how do we do that and what does that mean for us now who remain? So that's kind of, you know, that's another example of what we seek to do here in the Institute, right? Like there was the academic work that was my dissertation, my first academic book. And then there's the pastoral fruits of that, a book like this, Our Faithful Departed, which is meant to be picked up by, well, as many people as possible, but (laughs) meant to be picked up by non-specialists and not professionals in the academic guild, though it may be of interest to them. But people who are seeking to live their faith, who have questions about their faith, who are either grieving or have grieved or are accompanying those who grieve or any of us, because we will all lose people that we love. Mm -hmm. And we all face that question of where are they and why does that matter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, continuing this idea of books that come out of uh, uh, initiatives here at the Institute, you're the editor of this new book from Ignatius Press, Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. How did this book come about and and what is its kind of structure? So the book came about because we had gotten into the habit every Lent of running a public lecture series that was meant to foster kind of communal reading throughout the liturgical season of Lent and possibly even into the liturgical season of Easter. So we had done this one year reading Dante's Divine Comedy as a sort of communal engagement. We were asking people to read like a canto a day. And then we had a number of different lectures throughout that period from Lent to Easter where people would come and hear people speak on the comedy. That turned into a book. 
Dante and the Beauty of the Human Percy. I, actually, I edited that book and I can't even remember the title <laughs> of it. So anyways, but this one on the Chronicles of Transformation came from a similar type of offering. We wanted to offer people the opportunity to re-engage Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and possibly to read those during the liturgical seasons of Lent and Easter. And then we offered lectures that helped to enrich especially the liturgical themes of that kind of reading, that communal reading. Those lectures, then we talked with the lecturers and asked them to make those into book chapters, one on each of the seven chronicles. And that's sort of the skeleton, the basis of this edited volume. To that, so there's one essay on each of the seven chronicles, a sort of deeper dive, a sort of contemplation of what's taking place in those chronicles. In addition to that, we worked with a uh, illustrator, Stephen Barani, who's from these parts, who he used to work here. He used to work here, in fact, just a really remarkable artist. Uh, he was off doing his MFA at this time. We asked him if he'd be interested in creating an illustration for each of the seven chronicles, which he did. These really sort of compelling and sometimes complex illustrations that capture not only what's going on in that particular chronicle, but are also kind of drawing on some of the things that are in the chapter in this particular book, right? Right. So those, there are seven of those illustrations. And then a poet, Madeline Infantine, in fact, a former student of mine, I didn't teach her poetry. Um, <laughs> she's a superb poet. She wrote an original poem cycle for this book. Again, one poem for each of the seven chronicles. So what you have in this book then are actually eight Essays. There's an introductory one on arriving at Narnia, then one on each of the seven chronicles, these seven illustrations and these seven poems. So it's the combined efforts of theologians and literary scholars, an artist, a visual artist, and a poet to allow especially adult readers to maybe find new space for wondering in the midst of this children's literature because we sort of outgrow it and then we find ourselves coming back to it. Great children's literature. If it can only be read as children when we're children, then it's not great literature. The best children's literature can also be read when we're adults and nourish us in different ways at both times. Yeah. And I noticed that you actually draw upon like acknowledged experts in this. So Father Michael Ward is in here. He is. Uh, yeah. And he, of course, writes the chapter on Prince Caspian, and he draws from the book that he had published. Uh, kind Planet of, Narnia, his, Planet, yeah. his book, yep. And then uh, Peter Shackle, mm -hmm. uh, also, who's written about, like, particularly uh, written about the order of the books and things that's like right. that, because I know that's a huge debate. Uh, <laughs> Which I, order they should be read in. And I've done it both ways. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I've come back to There's only one the public. Answer. Yeah, published order is the Absolutely. Best. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has to go first. I did notice also that in this, your own chapter, we'll set aside the editor's note because uh, that's also you, but uh, your own chapter explores the first volume, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And you mentioned in your chapter that reading the book to your five-year-old, well, then five-year-old son, Isaac, was essential to your understanding of the book. And you, you write that much of what I write comes from how I learned to see something new through how Isaac saw things. Mm. Now, when did you first read the Chronicles of Narnia and, and what brought you back? Yeah, I actually only read the Chronicles when I was myself a young adult. I think I was um, probably 23 or 24. I was in grad school. So um, my now colleague here, David Fagerberg, um, he was teaching a course on the theme of theosis in the literature of C.S. Lewis. And I... You're going to have to unpack that word. Sure. The so layperson. the way in which, and maybe deification is another word that could be synonymous with that, the way in which we are made, 
we are made in the image of God, but we grow ever more into the likeness of God. We're transformed into more fully into God's image, and we become God. We don't become God. We become more God-like through the grace of uh, God's work on our lives. Mm-hmm. So um, I read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia as part of that graduate course, as a matter of fact. Now, we were reading a whole bunch of other stuff, too, both from Lewis and some other philosophical and theological-type works. But I was captivated by it the first time reading it at 23 or 24 years old. It was also kind of neat to have homework in graduate school where you had to read the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. So I think I did have a kind of initial wonder as a young adult reading through it and enjoying it and finding, you know, at that point in graduate school and thinking, trying to think about everything probably too much and analyzing things and, oh, this is really going on here beneath the surface and this is going on. But then when I read it to my five-year-old son, you know, 15, 16 years later, whatever it might have been, I think I had left that behind. You know, I've grown into more sophisticated thought. This thing maybe captured me even as a young adult, uh, 23, 24, but clearly now having my PhD and being a full-fledged adult, professional, whatever, I'm not going to be captured by this in the same way. And it really was in my experience of reading it to him and the reflection of wonder in his eyes and sometimes his audible responses to things that showed me the things that I took for granted I ought not take for granted. So, for example, anyone who's reading The Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe as an adult and you find that Aslan is going off to be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. You, you're, Spoiler alert. Right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. But you're kind of hip to the the theme that's going on. There's a motif, right? Like the one who will be sacrificed on this altar, he's probably going to come back to life, right? Like this is a, it's a Christic move. And yet for Isaac, that this character who very quickly he had fallen in love with was dead, really dead. He couldn't believe that lion was dead. He thought it was another one, right? No, but it's actually that one, Aslan, is really dead, the sort of exasperation and sadness that came over him. Now, Lewis doesn't leave the children there for very long. I think it's even within the same chapter. He appears at the horizon like the sun, sun breaking in the dark of night. But that moment, too, when Isaac heard that, the gasp and the joy and the suddenness of Aslan's return... You can't get the second without the first. And those of us who are too hip to the motif, like myself, like I know, I even when I was reading this the first time, I probably had a sense of where this was going. I have lost that wonder. And that's the thing that has to be recaptured, that childlike wonder. Not to be ignorant and not to be naive, but not to take for granted the fullness of that sacrifice, the real death, so that we might also recognize the real emergence of this resurrected life. And I only saw that in the reflection of Isaac's response, right? Yeah. So it kind of told me, you're, you, think, you might think you're a sophisticated guy. You're not as sophisticated as you think. You need to become more childlike. That's your growth for me as an adult. That's your path of growth. Yeah. Father Ward talks in his chapter about the idea of actually entering into, when the we read atmosphere. it, the atmosphere right. much more because we know now the story. Right. But yet it does draw us back in because we want to be back in that world. 
Right. And for him, I mean, this very much has to do with his own work, his sort of groundbreaking publication, Planet Narnia, which reveals quite a lot about Lewis's imagination and the Chronicles itself. But even when he writes about Prince Caspian, the particular chronicle that he focused on, he talks about, you know, coming into the atmosphere, not just of Narnia, but here of a chivalric tradition. Like, Mm -hmm. what does it mean? to live in a martial order. And the martial order does have to do with sort of military terms. There's a hard virtue to Prince Caspian. And in fact, that's in his own title, the hard virtue. Uh, To be hardened and thickened, to grow in courage and to be steeled um, in a certain way. But that martialness, if you will, that martiality of Prince Caspian also has to do with the woods. It has to do with the actual physical geography and descriptions of this place in Narnia, the woods play play a much stronger role in Caspian than they do in the others. And Lewis himself is working between those, that the god of war is also the god of the woods. And he's christening, if you will, without being uh, so overt as to say that, these other mythological traditions and breathing them into not into a Christian worldview as if now everything's allegorical in the Narnian world, but this is a way of responding to culture and to myth and to actually making it uh, sing and resound within a Christian imagination or to draw people into this space that might form a Christian imagination without being so overt as to say this is that and that is this, right? Like to live in the atmosphere of that world would change you as it changes the characters themselves. They're changed by the atmosphere. For us as readers, will we allow ourselves to be affected by the atmosphere of this story, to actually take seriously what is being put forth as serious, to be delighted by what is delightful, and to be hardened by what calls forth greater courage and confidence in us? Yeah. Yeah. Who is the audience then for for this volume, uh, The Chronicles of Transformation? So I think primarily it is for adult readers who are willing to have their imaginations renewed and recharged. Like I was saying in my own experience of reading even The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my son, there is a kind of death of self that would have to take place in order to allow yourself to enjoy these, really enjoy them. And actually to enjoy is a difficult thing. That means stop trying to make it fit what you want it to be. Stop overanalyzing, but enter in with that kind of childlike wonder into the atmosphere of the story, into the atmosphere of what's taking place. And without being a child, as an adult with childlike wonder, allow yourself to be affected and changed. So I speak about this in the editor's preface to the book. That's really the approach that we wanted to take to help people, and this is part of Lewis's own terminology, to contemplate, which means to look at and even wonder at from a distance, to see these chronicles and what's taking place, to maybe recognize some of the additional depth or complexity or beauty that's being there to see it in order that you might enter into it. And that's to enjoy. So these are Lewis's own categories. To contemplate is to look at. To enjoy is to look within, to be within the space. So that's our audience, is is adults who might be willing to do that. And you might not know how to do that. So we want to help you do that. We have all enjoyed, those of us who have contributed to this volume, we've all enjoyed the warmth of the Narnian sun, if you will. We've stepped back to help contemplate it with you so that you may enjoy it more fully later. Yeah. 
and that's where the art and the poetry also they Absolutely. add to the experience they as do. well, and they keep it from being purely a, a brain game. Right. Yes, you should appreciate the beauty and the wonder. It's hopefully there in the prose, but yeah. it's definitely there in the poetry and the visual art as well to give you the opportunity and, in fact, force you to slow down and reflect on this. It's not – none of this is meant to be something you march through very quickly from beginning to end. In fact, some of the early reviewers of the book said, you know, I thought I would get through this book quickly and it took me quite a long time because I read – you know, I took in one of the chapters, which includes the art, the poetry, and the essay on the Chronicle. And then I found myself immediately wanted to go to that Chronicle and read through it again and take more time with it. Yeah. And so this book, you know, might open up your reading. It's going to take you more time because you'll find yourself going back to the, the stories themselves, which is really the point of it. Right. It's not meant to be a replacement for the Chronicles of Narnia. It's meant to be um, – a sort of guide, a way of enriching the experience of reading this children's literature, which also is literature for adults. Yeah. I want to ask about a couple other projects. Okay. You've mentioned a number of things that you do here at the McGrath Institute. You also host the uh, Institute's radio show and podcast. So this is the crossover event of the century right here. <laughs> um, Church Life Today. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the show. Who are your guests and who is who is the show for? So the show Church Life Today is supposed to be about important issues in the life of the church today, which is why we call it Church Life Today. The guests are scholars and leaders in various forms of church life and education in society and culture. And we do typically about 30, 45-minute interview episodes, very much like you and I are doing here, where we're going to go deeper than the sound bites would let you go, right? We're going to go deeper into a, into a topic or theme. Oftentimes, if, if it's an author who's there who's published a book on something, I've read the whole book by the time we're, we're having this conversation, right? Because right. We're, it's not just going to be about the blurb. Let's get into what's going on here, not just as a promotion for the book, but actually to talk about the critical issues that are going on. How do we, how can we speak together and with a listening audience about why this is important, what's at stake, and where things are going. We've been running that show now for just over four years. It's been going really well. It was kind of an experiment to see, is this a form of media we want to get in? And four years later, we're looking back and say, yeah, I guess we're in it, right? And we're going to go forward. So we've had a really great podcast partner to this point who's helped develop the show. And we're we're moving that partnership into a different partnership to help us even increase the production quality and to help me on the production end with a producer to help schedule guests and things like that. But, you know, we want them to be intelligent, deep, broad-ranging conversations on important topics that will be of interest to people who care about the life of the church, who are interested in trends in education and technology, for example, who want to think at the intersection of public life and the life of faith, who are interested in what it means to form people in the life of faith today interested in evangelization, interested in communication, and interested in the arts. So that's what we're doing with Church Life today. Fantastic. Well, you also publish a regular electronic newsletter. I do. Life, Sweetness, and Hope. A very Marian and Notre dame title. Oh, thank Love you. it. Um, so what is LSH about? <laughs> Life, Sweetness, Hope. 
So I started this uh, in the fall of 2021. In fact, we're, we're talking on a Wednesday here. Um, and so every Wednesday I send, send this out in the afternoons. There's three sort of short little pieces. One on something that's meant to enrich your life, especially as a Christian. The sweetness tends to be more challenging. It's actually developing the taste for heaven. Um, so it's not – sometimes it's consolation, but it's not just consolation. It's about allowing our desires and affections to be reformed and transformed so that we may delight in the good that's prepared for us in heaven, which is actually very much a thought of John Henry Newman, actually C.S. Lewis, that we don't yet desire as we ought to desire. We're always being pulled forward, and our desires have to both die and be remade in order for us to enjoy heaven. So that's the middle part, sweetness. And then hope, some kind of story image that presents to us the beauty of hope. Hope is always the most surprising virtue, as the French poet Charles Piguet might remind us. Hope always surprises. That's its part of its essential quality. It's not unprecedented, but it's certainly unexpected, and it oftentimes comes to us in the darkest places. So some image or story of hope as, as the third part. And then towards the end, I like to share a little news for the newsletter, some of the things that I'm doing in terms of what I'm writing or something on our podcast or some of the things that I've read uh, maybe in the last week or so that I think might be of interest to other people. So try to keep it pretty brief because, you know, we're busy people. We're pe- busy people. So something that you could glance over, read over in a few minutes. If there's something that's a little bit more interesting to you than something else, maybe there's a follow-up that you can go to and, and read more on that. But you know, at most, maybe a five-minute little little something. Yeah. How do people subscribe? Uh, I think the easiest link, I created this little bit.ly link, you know, bit.ly slash life sweetness hope. And that takes you right to the subscription page, bit.ly slash life sweetness hope. And then um, I think like through my website, leonardjdlorenzo.com. And we'll put a link in the show notes, of course. There we go. Yeah. Well, Lenny, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ken. you to Lenny DiLorenzo. In the show notes, you will find a link to his homepage where you can sign up for his Life, Sweetness, Hope newsletter, as well as a link to his books, including The Chronicles of Transformation. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Thank you.